I love listening to podcasts, but did you know you can read this one too? Signed copies of The Surprising Rebirth of Belief in God book are available at my website, justinbriley.com. Professor John Lennox says, this is a first-rate book. Get it, read it, and give it to others. And who am I to argue with Professor Lennox? Or if you appreciate this podcast and would like the book, why not become a gold supporter via Patreon or US tax-deductible giving? And as well as getting early access to new episodes, I'll send you signed copies of both my books. For the book and to support, go to justinbriley.com or click the links with today's show. Good afternoon, everyone. It is September 8th. 2022 and we are interrupting regular programming to bring you breaking news. It is with deep sadness that Buckingham Palace has announced Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II, the longest reigning monarch in Commonwealth history, has died at the age of 96. From across the United Kingdom and around the globe, they came and they waited and they queued. All for this, a fleeting but significant moment a chance to say goodbye, not just to a monarch, but to a woman who meant so much to so many. I thought I was mad this morning. I, I just felt it was something I really wanted to do. She got you through your life, didn't she, yeah. Mum? Yeah, so we're here on behalf of our whole family, aren't we? Yes. Past and present. <laughs> if my grandparents would have been here today, uh, I know that they would have wanted to be here, so I'm here on their behalf and on behalf of my family and obviously to, to celebrate with everybody else here. Bit of a mission this, isn't it? It is a mission, um, but there is a light at the end of the tunnel um, and, you know, you just know that it's going to be a magical moment in there, so... The death of Queen Elizabeth II at the age of 96, after over 70 years on the throne, saw an outpouring of national grief and commemoration with millions of people paying their respects at city cathedrals and local parish churches. And many thousands turned out to pay their respects in person as her body lay in state in Westminster Hall, London. They're queuing around the clock now around 40,000 people, maybe more. It's a queue that's over four miles long. In a largely post-Christian culture, the loss of such an institutional icon and a woman of deep Christian faith seemed to cause a latent spirituality to surface in the general public. It was amazing. I wouldn't have missed it. It was worth waiting 11 hours. It really was. Very emotional um, and very poignant, very touching um, to see everyone go in and pay their respects. And you can just feel the love that everyone has for her. People just saw her as a humble servant, really living out the Christian faith. It's often felt in recent days that a veil of sorrow has covered the nation, but the Queen's funeral has surely exemplified her reign. She united us in one final act of togetherness, unifying the United Kingdom and indeed the world beyond in respect, ceremony and significance. For a week or so, in September 2022, the normal rules of our secular society seemed to get put on pause and honouring the eternal significance of one woman's life seemed to be a perfectly normal thing for many otherwise apparently non-religious people to do. Perhaps it's a sign that we aren't as irreligious as is often assumed. Indeed, 
While church-going has been in steady decline in the West, the consequent rise of the nuns, those who claim no religious belief, doesn't necessarily mean people are becoming more atheistic. In fact, in our modern age, people can still get very religious about certain issues, identities and causes. I'm Justin Briley, and throughout my working life, I've been hosting conversations on faith between atheists, agnostics and believers. In this documentary series, I'm telling the story of why new atheism grew old and secular thinkers are considering Christianity again. I'm speaking to those inside and outside the atheist movement and the many new thinkers beginning a new conversation on the value of faith. Along the way, we'll meet some of those who have found themselves surprised by God as they've made the journey from atheism to Christianity. Welcome to the surprising rebirth of belief in God, Episode 6, The Meaning Crisis. Just before we jump into the rest of today's show, one of the voices you'll hear on this podcast is friend of the show, Glenn Scrivener, a brilliant Christian communicator. Glenn has recently put together an online course called 321. It's an introduction to Christianity that's imaginative, stimulating and assumes no prior knowledge. If you've been thinking about exploring faith for yourself or if you want something to share with your friends, 321 is just the thing. Glenn presents eight video-led sessions which are beautifully shot and animated. I found it a really engaging and practical way of connecting the big ideas in this podcast to our everyday life. I'm already thinking of people I can share it with. See for yourself at 321course.com slash JB. It's completely free. Just start a free account with your email and a password and you're in. There's no spam, no hidden costs. Go to 321course.com slash JB and discover life according to Jesus. Yeah, she was she was just that symbol of permanence, and you took that away, and we sort of suddenly felt the lack of it. And you felt like this yearning for permanence. This is Bishop Graham Tomlin, who, along with a team of Anglican clergy in London, acted as a chaplain to the queue, offering support and prayer to those waiting in line over the course of several days. And that's why some of the ceremony, the ceremonial kind of a was a reassuring thing because it reminds you there's something longer than our own lifetimes and bigger than our own stories that that that, are, that we are rooted in. And I think at that moment you suddenly saw people, yeah, we, we kind of need permanence. We need longevity. We need something bigger than ourselves. We need a set of values that will hold us. And she kind of represented those in her own character. And um, and it, 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 so I, I think it was one of those moments that uncovered that deep yearning for the for the permanent for the lasting for the the transcendent but and i suppose the other thing about it it was a it was a kind of reminder of our own mortality in one sense yes she was the queen but in another sense she was an ordinary sinner like you and me um she was a, a frail old lady who was put into a grave like we will all be one day and so you know it was a when suddenly you're faced with your own vulnerability, you need something bigger than that to hold you. And that's what Christian faith offered at that moment, and it's what it still offers to people today. Today. 
Many of those who came face to face with the Queen's coffin searched for an appropriate sign of reverence, a solemn bow, hands held in the position of prayer or a whispered thank you. Theologian and sociologist Professor Stephen Bullivant says that in an age when most people have forgotten the ceremonies of religious tradition, many still grasped for ways to mark the meaningfulness and mystery of this moment. You had hundreds of thousands of people feeling it in deeply important, you know, important enough to queue for hours and hours and hours and hours to do what? To be near a corpse and to make some gesture of something to someone. Huh? Um, him? Um, what? Um, and obviously if you watch the live stream and uh, you know, some people would be doing signs of the cross or something, you know, obviously kind of, you know, following a script as it were, you know, like a set thing. And a lot of people just didn't know what to do, like a little salute or a little tap. Um, but also people obviously felt that you leave candles, that this is an appropriate thing to do when someone dies. And, and But the range of candles were people who'd obviously like gone to the piety shop at their you know, local Polish Catholic parish and had like a massive Our Lady of Chesterhova thing. But most of them were like people who got a Yankee candle from the bathroom. You know, that was the only candle they had and it felt appropriate that you'd have a candle. Bullivant, whose books such as Nonverts have charted the rise of the unchurched and non-religious in the West, says that the response to the Queen's death is evidence that being non-religious doesn't mean people have turned into hard-headed atheists. People don't have a script, people don't have a well-worked-out metaphysical worldview, but actually, especially at, at times of death and things, that, that you, know, you, you do see there's a, a lot going on under the surface and it's not, it's certainly not philosophical materials. This summer, in its own tongue-in-cheek way, the Barbie movie, with its gender-stereotype-smashing storyline, reminded millions of viewers that they are Kenuff, and that, in the end, we can all be whatever we want to be. A message that has been reinforced across modern culture in a thousand different ways. Dare to be yourself and feel like you belong. I thought it'd be cool to make 23 tips for 2023 on how to love yourself. Trans women are women, trans men are men, and non-binary people are non-binary. Like, yeah, you're right, I can just be myself. That sounds fantastic. I don't have to be anything that I'm not. Be your true self here and now. And discover who you want to be tomorrow. So we find ourselves in the modern 21st century. As we heard in last week's show, the Christian narrative of the past that once gave people a sense of common purpose and their place in the created order has in large part been overthrown or forgotten. Now a be-whoever-you-want-to-be culture is in the ascendancy as people search for a true inner identity, their authentic self. 
This phenomenon is sometimes described as expressive individualism, a term coined by sociologist Robert Bella and popularized by Catholic philosopher Charles Taylor, who's described our modern godless era as the age of authenticity. In our secular conversations and in our secular world, the story told us that we didn't need God, um, or at least that we could doubt that there was permission to, to question and to come with scrutiny and rationalization and ask questions about our beliefs. Therefore, all beliefs are debatable, questionable, and we can treat with ultimately a degree of skepticism. Joe Frost is the co-author of Being Human and says that as the story of reality has changed around us, so the focus of our identity has shifted. But if God is the is the anchor point and he's now been removed, the question is what takes his place? And the answer was I do. Um, so Descartes, I think therefore I am. Like Actually, the human individual takes his place. And so when it comes to our connectivity, our relationships with others, instead of God being the kind of the centrifugal point and we all orbit and oscillate around him and find our relationships in relation to who he is at the centre, I am now at the centre. I am the centre point of this universe and everybody else and everything else orbits around me. So my world and my relationships become dependent on what I want and what I need, but they also become fearful that somebody else might take Take away from me what I want and I need. And so we end up in this place of desire and fear because I can't trust other people and I can only take care of myself. And so relationships and justice and peace is all around the centre point of me. Bishop Graham Tomlin is the author of the book Why Being Yourself is a Bad Idea. Ultimately, we're not made just to be pure individuals. Um, and the problem with the be yourself advice, which is goes everywhere when you look for it, that's the kind of number one commandment of modern life, you know, be yourself. And, and the assumption behind that is you have to look inside yourself to your own thoughts and desires and feelings and so on to discover who you really are. The problem with that is it turns you inside, turns you inwards rather than outwards. And it breeds a whole world and generation of people who um, trying to sort of be themselves, to find themselves by looking within, rather than finding themselves by looking without to their friends, neighbours, family, and to God. Um, because, again, within the Christian faith, we're told that to be truly human is to be able to love God and to love your neighbour. Um, yes, there's a loving yourself within that, love your neighbour as yourself. Um, but that what that seems to be, to be saying is, you know, what I need to... Make sure that you know if, if I love myself, I make sure that I've got food and shelter and education and all the things that I need. I'm as determined that you have that as much as I do. That's what it means to love your neighbour as yourself. So, in other words, we find our true selves in relationship to God and to one another, not just on our own as individuals. And that's why be yourself is not really a very good idea because it just makes you look in the wrong place. Um, and actually, where we we find our true selves only in relationship. This loss of a common story that binds us all together is part of a wider phenomenon of the rise of the self in society versus the communal identity that often used to define people. 
Our current time in history is unique. We live in an era of options when we have 50 different choices for how our coffee is served in Starbucks and can have music delivered to us according to our individual preferences via Spotify. Likewise, we're the first generation at liberty to invent our own meaning, define our own identity and create our own story. As that most succinct Gen Z slogan puts it, you do you. This postmodern trend in which we broker our own identity rather than having it handed down to us has gathered pace in recent years, thanks especially to the advent of social media. The LGBT movement in particular, which fought for the rights and recognition of gay and lesbian people in past decades, has since birthed an array of additional sexual and gender identities that people choose to adopt. While critics may roll their eyes at the LGBTQIA plus so-called alphabet soup this sometimes results in, nevertheless journalist Ben Sixsmith says that those who embrace these identities usually regard them as sacrosanct. The internalization of meaning is certainly a big phenomenon now where people take their personal identity to be like an incredibly sacred phenomenon uh, and, and a kind of mystical phenomenon in the way that someone who is in every sense biologically a male or biologically female, for example, can think of themselves in some kind of biologically unexplained way to really belong to another gender. It does have this mystical quality. And I think, uh, you know, I think even people who are firm advocates of the phenomenon would find it difficult to deny that. Uh, but also in, in other ways where um, people will look inside themselves to find, you know, their, their pure political ideology or their kind of very niche cultural mishmash uh, of subcultures, uh, yeah, we do we 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 do locate meaning within ourselves more than we do out in the world. I mean, um, Charles Taylor has this book, A Secular Age, which is talking about how we've built the kind of buffered self where we're very contained and more or less explicitly trying to keep out outside influences. Uh, whereas in the past, people would have experienced the whole world in a mystical sense. You know, even the rainfall would have some kind of spiritual meaning. We do locate meaning within a soul that we don't even believe in. It was the German sociologist Max Weber who coined the phrase disenchantment to describe a secular age stripped of the meaning that once imbued everything. But as a shared identity through Christian meaning in the West has faded from view, arguably people haven't become less religious, they've simply become religious about different things. I believe the search for some kind of transcendent meaning through a focus on personal identity is part of a wider picture of the many quasi-religious activities that often characterise people's lives. From new movements such as Witch Talk, in which young women share hexes, spells and potions in TikTok videos, to more mainstream New Age practices focused on mindfulness and meditation in a post-Christian age people still frequently describe themselves as spiritual but not religious. At the same time, priests who offer rites of exorcism in the Catholic Church say they have seen a significant spike in requests in recent years, a phenomenon they say is linked to the increasing numbers of people who are dabbling in the occult. Whether the objects of faith appear mild or extreme, 
a willingness to believe in something beyond the confines of science and reason seems to be built into our species. But our own attempts to reweave meaning, purpose and identity from within seem to be becoming increasingly threadbare. Historian Sarah Irving Stonebreaker, whom we met in a previous episode, has been researching the historical impact of the changing cultural narrative. Stories and um, the very kind of limited stories that the culture has are in many ways a kind of almost schizophrenic mishmash of what were formerly Christian ideals, but of which have, for example, you know, there's still a kind of yearning for justice or yearning for free ideals, which are deeply and richly grounded biblically and in the history of Christian theology, but which have been sort of completely unmoored from that theological, biblical and historical grounding, and which are somehow these kind of ideas that are now haphazardly tacked onto individual desires. So like I desire freedom, but there's no kind of real grounded, rich sense of what freedom is. So those stories really um, are partial and they're transient and they're going nowhere. And I think the other thing that is important to add to that is that this story, well, this is sort of paraphrasing um, Stanley Hauerwas here, who says that really the only story I in this contemporary um, neoliberal society that the the only story I have is my own in the sense that there's only a kind of highly individual story because this is a, a culture of just relentless self-invention. We're not, we no longer kind of really as a, as a culture in the West invite our children into a heritage, into a story. It's basically all about the story that you invent for yourself. Um, and I hazard that this is... Um, Yes, in no small part behind the kind of massive mental health epidemic we have where young people, of course they don't, of course they're anxious. They, they're basically cast loose in the world and basically being told to go and invent themselves. I also believe that this loss of a shared identity is part of the reason for the modern mental health crisis. And this is the great irony of our age. We live in a more materially prosperous time than at any other. Life expectancy is at an all-time high and we have constant and ubiquitous access to the kind of technology that our ancestors would have considered nothing short of magical. Yet statistics tell us that we're more unhappy than we've ever been and that's especially true of young people. A troubling new report from the CDC shows the number of deaths by suicide among adolescents and young adults is on the rise. Experts say the increases have been driven by a number of factors, including stress, social media, and the pandemic. According to the report, suicide rates for people between the ages of 10 and 24 rose 60% since 2011. In 2018, some 6,500 suicides were registered in the UK. That's 686 more deaths than the previous year, an 11.8% increase. Men account for almost three quarters of these deaths. From 2016 to 2020, suicide was the fourth leading cause of fatal injury for children 15 and under. So we assume that the, the greater openness about suicide uh, was having a benefit, allowing people to come forward and seek help when they needed it. So it is a surprise that it's now uh, gone up. Uh, and maybe that tells us that talking on its own isn't enough. 
The prevalence of mental health problems has skyrocketed in recent years, with nearly one-third of young women in the UK reporting anxiety and depression, with disturbing ramifications in terms of suicide rates. Psychologist Jonathan Haidt has written widely on these statistics. This is him speaking to Lex Friedman on the effect of widespread social media use via smartphone technology on young people from the 2010s onwards. There's a lot of data tracking adolescents, um, their self-reports of how depressed, anxious, lonely. Um, there's data on hospital admissions for self-harm. There's data on suicide. And all of these things, they bounce around somewhat, um, but they're relatively level in the early 2000s. And then all of a sudden, around, you know, around 2010 to 2013, depending on which statistic you're looking at, all of a sudden, they begin to shoot upwards, um, more so for girls in some cases, but on the whole, it's like, up for both sexes, it's just that boys have lower levels of anxiety and depression, so the curve is not quite as dramatic. But what we see is not small increases. It's not like, oh, 10%, 20%. No, the increases are between 50 and 150%, um, depending on which group you're looking at. Um, you know, Suicide for preteen girls, thank thankfully, it's not very common, um, but it's two to three times more common now, or by 2015, it had doubled. Between 2010 and 2015, it doubled. So something is going radically wrong in the world of American preteens, uh, and what we so as I've been studying it, I found first of all, it's not just America; it's identical in Canada and the UK. Um, Australia, New Zealand are very similar; they're just after a little delay. Height says that the technology itself isn't the problem; it's those who are controlling the algorithms in Silicon Valley. Connecting people is good. I'm not a luddite, um, and social media. At least the idea of users posting things like that happens on LinkedIn, and it's great. It can serve all kinds of needs. What I'm talking about here is not the internet, it's not technology, it's not smartphones, and it's not even all social media. It's a particular business model in which people are incentivized to create content, and that content is what brings other people on. And the people on there are the product which is sold to advertisers. It's that particular business model which Facebook pioneered, um, which seems to be incredibly harmful for teenagers, especially for young girls, 10 to 14 years old is where they're most vulnerable. Um, and it seems to be particularly harmful for democratic institutions because it leads to all kinds of anger, conflict, and the destruction of any shared narrative. To a large degree, social media, from YouTube to Tumblr to Instagram, has enabled the flourishing of communities where increasingly varied and esoteric identities are affirmed. These online communities have encouraged many new sexual and gender identities to emerge, as well as more disturbing trends in terms of things like suicide ideation. But Anglican priest Jamie Franklin, co-host of the Irreverend podcast, is more worried about the spiritual cost of the constant distraction of technology that stops people from actually engaging with each other and God in human ways. And now I think people are increasingly zombified and, and just almost like um, um, the, the phone and the internet is a kind of appendage to their person. And I think it's it's having a devastating effect upon people spiritually, um, not least because they're just numb to any kind of consideration of transcendence or of God or of ultimate purpose. Um, so, you know, one doesn't want to sound um, like some kind of uh, sort of curmudgeonly Luddite, but I, I do I do see that as 
is absolutely fundamental. When you look at the ubiquity of iPhone use, um, the amount of hours people spend holding their iPhone, staring at their iPhone, st- scrolling on them, and when you also consider the advent of uh, virtual technology, which is you know it's just around the corner, um, this is a kind of spiritual death which I think our culture is walking into. And I might add as well that it's also pretty ubiquitous in the church. Um, I think there needs to be a I think there needs to be a um, an intentional and robust and well thought through resistance to the incursion of, of, of technology of this sort in the church. Um, uh, there needs to be some kind of spiritual awakening uh, across the board where we realise the, the danger of this stuff and, and what it's doing to our doing to our souls. So I think that technology has an absolutely huge part to play in it. Peter Linus, co-author of Being Human, agrees that the mental health crisis, the loss of a shared identity and the rise in technology are part of a perfect storm. Um, and but as we all write our own stories in a post-truth world, one, that's an incredible pressure to bear and we can't bear as an individual. So we see a lot more turning inward, not only just to kind of be authentic to ourselves, but then we kind of buckle under the pressure and that's the tragedy of the moment. I think we're seeing a lot more of that. Some of the mental health issues and some of the other issues going on are because we can't bear the weight and that's not realistic on any one individual. Um, so we need to be, and I do think we're seeing that so kind of practically as well as uh, writers and intellectual people saying, hold on, this isn't working, this isn't coherent, we don't know what to do about AI as it comes along, we don't have a frame of reference. Jamie Franklin. And the, re- the reason that I think the secular thinkers can't help us that much with this is because this is ultimately a spiritual issue. This is about this is about hearing the voice of God in a world which is more and more intentionally and powerfully set up to distract us and to dull our senses, to dull our spirits, uh, to make it impossible to pray and to make it impossible to 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 attend to the purposes of God in our lives and in the world. So I, that needs to be a spiritual solution. Author and poet Paul Kingsnorth has his own surprising story of coming to Christian faith, which we'll explore in more detail in a forthcoming episode. He's one among many voices recognising that our modern mental health crisis is a spiritual crisis at its core. Chesterton said, Chesterton was arguing with Marx. He said, it's not true that religion is the opium of the people, it's irreligion which is the opium of the people, because if you don't worship something beyond the world, you will worship the world. Mm. And above all, you will worship the strongest thing in the world. Mm. It's true. So it's true. You get your religious gaze uh, directed towards, well, this is what idol worship is, right? You you start worshipping the world instead. What we worship is money. We worship wealth. Above all, I think we worship technology. Uh, And you can see where that's going. That's going towards transhumanism, artificial intelligence, the attempt to create our own God, to be God, in fact. That's where we're going. Um, And I think that the more that that is openly the case, the more that we try to remake human nature, remake nature itself, behave like gods, um, the more people are going to start saying, well, hang on a minute, what what actually is happening here? The more you have to ask this question, what is a human? What is nature? What is the world? And that's going to focus a lot of people's minds. I think it already is.
Before we jump back into today's show, a shout out to Figaro in Canada who left a review saying, this is quite simply the most interesting and well-produced podcast I've ever listened to. Outstanding. Leaving a rating and a review of the show helps others to discover it. But if you can become a monthly supporter of the podcast, it makes a huge difference. Silver level supporters get early access to new episodes and bonus content, such as the video of our recent conversation event with Tom Holland. Gold supporters also get signed copies of both my books and an opportunity for a monthly catch up with me on Zoom. If you love the show, why not support it today at justinbriley.com or just follow the links with today's show notes. In recent years, I had noticed more and more people like Kingsnorth, as well as many still secular thinkers, asking whether we can live without a transcendent story of who we are and what we're here for. They include psychologists like Jonathan Haidt and Jordan Peterson, who we met in last week's episode, but now also thinkers like Ayan Hirsi Ali, the Somali-born ex-Muslim, who in the mid-2000s became a high-profile speaker in the New Atheist Movement, but recently made the shock announcement that she has embraced Christianity. We'll be covering her remarkable story and what her embrace of Christianity means in more detail in a couple of weeks' time. Even Richard Dawkins, who, as far as I know, has not made any recent professions of faith, has nevertheless seemed to soften his critique of traditional religion in recent years. He's been expressing his concerns at the way certain modern quasi-religious ideologies around gender and sexuality are, in his view, threatening scientific truth. In a recent interview with Peter Boghossian, a once stalwart of the New Atheist movement himself, Dawkins was encouraged to consider the substitution hypothesis that these new quasi-religious movements were superseding the traditional religions that he once railed against. If it's true, and I don't know if it's true, that there's a substitution hypothesis, then should rational people um, step out of the way or not encourage people to believe things that are false? Because I would never do that, and I think that's grossly unethical. But um, there are certain delusions that are better for people to believe in mass than others. Yeah, so if you've got to believe in a delusion, if, if there's something, some law that says you... There's a certain quotient of deludedness that everybody's got to have. Right. And certain, some, some are more <laughs> harmless than others. And Correct. So, and Correct. So, I mean, I, I, th- I sort of feel this a little bit about Islam and Christianity, yeah. that, that um, um, Islam is, is such an evil at the, at the moment, or yeah. Islamism is such an evil at the moment, that in Africa especially, maybe Christianity is a better alternative. And right. It may be that it's no good trying to... Pr- preach atheism in Africa right um, and Christianity might be a better a better alternative I think Ayan Hersiali has suggested something yeah, similar she, to that she has what can you do to prevent an ideology from having a domino effect and just taking over whole-scale institutions well if you're right about the substitution hypothesis that's yeah. a very pessimistic conclusion yeah. uh, I don't my, know that I know my, my, yeah. my whole life has been devoted to the idea that you you simply argue in favor of evidence-based beliefs. Right. And uh, um, I suppose I'd take a rather sort of take it or leave it attitude. I mean, th- yeah. th- this, is, this is what the evidence shows. Yeah. Why don't you believe it? Um, but if you're right about the substitution hypothesis, then 
I'm rather inclined to give up. I mean, I, I don't know how to cope with that. Um, I used to think that the one thing that would make me want to die would be if I found myself in a world where I was surrounded by people who no longer believed in evidence and believed in something else other than evidence, somehow felt contempt for evidence. And mm. I hope we're not approaching that now. I, I don't, I mean, none of yeah. my friends are like that. Dawkins' mention of Ayan Hirsi Ali was prescient. We'll hear more of her recently changed relationship with Faith in future episodes and how Boghossian, while still an atheist, has also changed his outlook. In another interview with Francis Foster and Constantin Kissin of the Trigonometry podcast, Dawkins went so far as to acknowledge that in an increasingly anxious culture, religious belief could act as a necessary salve for those who have it. So, for instance, if when, when somebody is very ill, and maybe they have cancer, and they don't know if they're going to live or not. This knowledge that there is a supreme being looking after them, or that there's somewhere that they're going to go afterwards, provides someone with a deep sense of comfort in the darkest moments of their life. And whilst I agree with everything that you said about science and discovery and the wonder of looking at the universe, I don't think that provides that particular emotion. Do you see? No, it's probably true. Uh, and um, again, you can say um, that, that the, the solace that you get, the comfort you, that you get from a belief, even if it's false, is nevertheless is comforting. Um, the comfort that you get from believing a falsehood um, is like a drug. And, and it's a perfectly valid argument to say that, that there's everything to be said for the drug. Mm. There are, of course, real drugs you can take. It doesn't have to be a, f a false belief. You can, you can take... So more equivalent. Well, well, that, I mean, that is absolutely true. It, it's you know, it's that drug is is such a powerful thing. You you see, I can I've got to the stage in my life, Richard, where I can tell a lot of the time if someone is religious because there's a lightness about them. There's almost the, 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 that kind of existential dread which hangs off atheists, and maybe I'm projecting somewhat. They don't seem to have. Not my experience. Um, uh, I would I, say you have the same lightness, yeah, by the way. Actually, yes. Okay, I, I, I'm not sure that that would stand up to a serious investigation. <laughs> <laughs> so we are living in the midst of a mental health crisis, which seems to stem from an identity crisis and which may ultimately be a spiritual crisis. A recent UK survey reveals the scale of the problem in our culture. Nine in ten young Brits aged 16 to 29 responded that their life lacks purpose or meaning. Psychologist John Viveki has pinpointed the loss of a religious framework as a key to this phenomenon and has written and spoken extensively on how the Enlightenment and the move to a secular world led to the loss of a religious worldview that homed us and gave us access to wisdom. Now we live alienated from the world and even each other as we lose the stories, rituals and community that once grounded our lives. We are self-medicating, distracting ourselves to death with technology and material things, yet a form of hedonistic nihilism has settled into many parts of our culture. This phenomenon has reached its zenith in the 21st century and it was Viveki who coined an apt phrase for it, the meaning crisis. Speaking on the Rebel Wisdom podcast, he outlined the effects of this crisis. Just a warning, we've left some colourful description here unbeeped for the sake of clarity. 
the symptoms are things we're talking about. We've got, you know, I incredible political, adversarial, and degenerative discourse. Uh, we have the pervasive uh, sense, we talked about this, Chris and Philip and I in the book, uh, 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 we actually measured it, right, um, of, uh, of a sense of increasing bullshit in the society. Now, I use that term technically, and we might want to talk about that at some point, uh, following on Frankfurt's seminal work on bullshit. But the, 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 the pervasive sense uh, that uh, bullshit is growing and becoming permeating our society this weird dichotomy where everything is politicized, but people are being politically disenfranchised. They, you know, voting's going down, participation in parties is going down. You have uh, disenfranchisement from established religious institutions. You have a failing in faith in all, uh, in most of our political institutions, definitely the legislative, uh, increasingly judicial, law enforcement. Um, you have an increasing default uh, existential stance of nihilism and cynicism, uh, often very shallow versions of this, though, as pervasive through the culture. And this is also, uh, I, I would argue, and I think others would agree with this, exacerbating the mental health crisis, the addiction crisis, opioid crisis, things like that. Elsewhere, Viveki has described the main victims of this meaning crisis. The fastest growing demographic group are the nuns, N-O-N-E-S's. They have no religious allegiance, but they are not primarily atheistic. They most frequently describe themselves with this very, this, is, this has become almost everybody now describes, I'm spiritual, but not religious, mm -hmm. which means they are trying to find a way of reducing the bullshit and enhancing the connectedness, but they don't want to turn to any of the legacy established religions, by and large. But it's not just about the loss of institutional religion. Paul Vanderclay has been charting the meaning crisis as a vlogger and speaker over several years. He told me why the new materialist meta-narrative that came to replace the Christian story of reality has precipitated this moment. Once sort of we began to see the universe not as uh, an enchanted, spirit-filled, magical place, but a system of interlocking machines, we began to suspect that we ourselves were nothing but a machine. I am simply, sort of in a Sam Harris way, I am simply the working out of of chaos and physics in the world. All of my, my whole sense of self is nothing but a grand sociological, psychological mechanism. And I am of no greater importance than the fish of the river or the birds of the air. I am just following my programming. And, and the matrix, I think, in 1999 sort of epitomized that. And, and so on one level, we began to ask, what does it all mean? My happiness is only a product of brain chemistry. My presence is only a product of um, genetic, um, genetically evolved human beings. My sense of wonder is just simply mental stimulation. And if that's the case, why not simply pursue good thoughts and not bad thoughts, good times and not bad times? Why not just be a simple hedonist? 
And, you know, I think Peterson is right in that he noted that um, we don't live for happiness. We live for meaning. If, if people simply lived for happiness, there'd be no wars because why bother? Um, there'd be killing, but why organize? And, and so the meaning crisis is in some ways a, a product of the idea of a mechanistic world that I myself am merely a machine following a programming. Now we're, we have so many decisions inflicted on us um, that it's just natural for us to look about with more confusion. I asked Ben Sixsmith if G.K. Chesterton's dictum that when people stop believing in God, they do not believe in nothing, they have the capacity to believe in anything, was coming true in our culture. He said, it's not just about the loss of God, it's the loss of many overarching stories. In the past, there were more kind of collective narratives about what it meant to be alive within a nation, within a faith, within even like a local community. And now a lot of those collective narratives have died. I mean, people generally are less patriotic in the sense of thinking like a country is a single collective force. People are less likely to be religious. Uh, our local communities and families are much more fluid. It's what uh, Sigmund Bauman called liquid modernity. So we're kind of looking around for meaning and then suddenly it's not there. So I, I think there's a kind of philosophical depression that's more of an issue than uh, a kind of secular religious radicalism. You know, people now, we have this kind of slightly uninspired individualism where, we, you know, we're, we're not really sure what to devote our life to. We'll travel around a bit and poke in the nooks and crannies of society and culture for meaning, but nothing often that leads us to, you know, have kids or build institutions or build connections. So. I think there's a lot of truth to what Chesterton said, but also um, it had its opposite, which, if anything, is more damaging, the kind of um, the, the sigh at the end of centuries of crime. But the need for a story to make sense of life by is baked into us, says Joe Frost. Man is a teller of tales. Um, we uh, we tell our lives as if they are a story, and we live our lives as if we, as if we are in one. We we cannot encounter the world that we're in except in narrative. There are pinnacle moments. There are turning points. Main character energy. We are storied creatures. And I think one of the challenges that we've encountered just in our lives, on our streets, through COVID and everything else that's happened with us, um, that people's stories have got smaller. The smaller the story, the less capable it is of holding the weight of a, a whole human life. Because to be human is, is to be made in the image of God. It's to have purpose and meaning and dignity and value and connectivity and all of these amazing things. If our stories are too small, that's where we see the cracks and the fragmentation and the anxiety and all of these things bubble up. So I think the stories that we tell of ourselves and the stories that we inhabit are incredibly powerful. 
And I think we've encountered in time and time again that the, the fragility of our cultural stories are having profound impacts on who we are and how we relate to each other. And that we need to have confidence that actually there is a bigger story and there is a better story that we are invited to participate in. And it is rich and it is deep and it's, com it's complex and it's nuanced. And actually we need that full story to make sense of our lives. And if we can find ourselves in it, and we can start to glimpse what it means to be truly human. Graham Tomlin says that the loss of a shared transcendent story has also been detrimental on our politics and public institutions. I do think that the loss of the Christian story is part of why we've become more polarised. Um, be like in the world where there was a general sense that there was a God and there was an order which he had given within the world and we all fitted in with that order. We all had our different political opinions and approaches and so on, but they were kind of held within a broader structure. Uh, you know, my political opinions were penultimate, not ultimate. Now we've sort of stripped away that sense of there being a broader story, a God who oversees and everything and to whom everything returns eventually. My political opinions become ultimate, not penultimate. Therefore, they become the only thing that matters. Therefore, if you have a different political opinion, so I, you are my enemy. Um, rather than someone held within the love of God, as it were. Uh, do we have to invent the new thing? Go, go to, from the old phone, create the iPhone, invent the new psychotechnology that takes place of okay. religion. This is popular podcast host Lex Friedman asking John Viveki if anything can replace the role of religion. And so when the madman in Nietzsche's text goes into the marketplace, who is he talking to? He's not talking to the believers. He's talking to the atheists. And he says, do you not realize what we have done? Right? We have taken a sponge and wiped away the sky. We are now forever falling. We are unchained from the sun. We have to become worthy of this. Yeah. Well, Nietzsche is full of romantic bullshit. As we no, 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 no. But there's a point there. Yes. The point is, right, there's one thing to rejecting the proposition. There's another project of replacing the functionality that we lost when we reject the religion. So his worry that as nihilism takes hold, you don't ever replace the thing that religion, uh, the role that religion played in our... Maybe it's, it's hard to tell what he actually, because he's so multivocal. Um, I, I, I'll speak for me yeah. rather than for Nietzsche. I think it is possible to, using the best cognitive science and respectfully exapting what we can from the best religion and philosoph philosophical traditions, because there's things like Stoicism that are in the gray line between philosophy and religion. Buddhism is the same. Doing that best cognizance, that best exaptation, we can come up with that functionality without having to buy into the particular propositional sets of the legacy religions. That's my proposal. I call that the religion that's not a religion. I believe John Viveki has correctly identified the causes of the meaning crisis and many of its symptoms, but I'm not so convinced by his cure, the religion that's not a religion. If we are made to live in a story that's bigger than us, I don't think we can simply play act a part in something we know is ultimately still just a fiction. I believe the time has come to rediscover and live into a good, beautiful and true story. 
New Atheism sought to tear down the last vestiges of the Christian narrative that once gave shape to people's lives. But what story did it erect in its place? The hopes of secularism seemed to have fallen flat. The rapid advance of science and technology has turned out to be incapable of delivering on its promise of a flourishing, connected and happier future. Indeed, the reverse seems to be true. Technology and social media have only contributed to the meaning crisis. Yet we are innately meaning-seeking creatures. Indeed, I'd argue that we are innately religious. And if one set of religious beliefs is taken away, it will only be replaced by another set of quasi-religious beliefs. And whether it be sacred sexual and gender identities on the progressive left, or the political mythology of a saviour who can make America great again on the right, I believe the stories we have replaced the God story with are increasingly incapable of sustaining us or our culture. Next week, we'll meet more of the influential secular thinkers I've noticed who are asking how we make sense of life without the God story in the West. However, I've increasingly begun bumping into influential thinkers who have made a personal journey to believing there is a good, beautiful and true story to be discovered in Christianity. One of them is Martin Shaw, storyteller, author and founder of the West Country School of Myth, who only two years ago announced he had become a Christian after 30 or more years of academic research and spiritual searching. I asked Martin firstly what a storyteller and mythologist is and whether the Christian story could be that true myth that makes sense of all the many smaller stories our culture is telling itself. Tell us what a mythologist and storyteller is, first of all. <laughs> well, they're two slightly different disciplines. A storyteller is exactly what you would imagine. It's the thing that we've been doing since the Lascaux Caves. It's looking around at consciousness, looking around at the world we're living in and making sense of it to some degree through stories. A mythologist uh, has the ring of academia about it, I suppose. Uh, a mythologist is someone that explores the layers of a story from its kind of, you know, metaphysical wow factor down to, you know, does this, does this story feel like it happened to you on the way to walk, work this morning? Because actually, to be honest, if a story doesn't have some kind of... Uh, resonance in the life we're actually living, they don't get remembered for long. The God-shaped hole, the meaning-shaped hole, for me, the myth-shaped hole is not going to go away. I mean, you're, you're obviously an imaginative, artistic soul. I almost have this vision of you, Martin, as a sort of wild man of the woods, <laughs> kind of, you know, just exploring nature, inviting others into this journey. You've obviously had, though, uh, you know, you, you've, you've gone the academic route. You've done the PhD. You've, um, you've obviously established a school uh, of mythology and storytelling as well. And during this period of your life, how did you regard Christ as... Another myth among many. What was the sort of way in which you you sort of thought about that? He's, he's definitely not a he's not a myth amongst many. Speaking as someone that has a new version of the back eye coming out, Euripides' play on Dionysus very soon, I can tell you that those figures, although there's an ornamental connection through things like the vine and wine, you're never in a million years going to encounter something like the Sermon on the Mount coming out of Dionysus' mouth. I found Christ disturbing. Um, 
there's a poet I know. She said to me, she said, I think in a very strange way, Christ is the last of the Greek gods and turns everything before sort of on its head. The Christ story didn't fit neatly with any of the other mythologies that I was exploring, although there was connective thread. Mm. What disturbed me about the Gospels was that it sounded awfully like they had a postcode to them. It, do you know what I'm saying? It, it's very site-specific. You don't uh -huh. get this in the Gnostic Gospels. The Gnostic Gospels mm. were all floating around like astronauts, and it's the same old, same old. If you've read <laughs> mystical content, you've read that before. Okay. But the, the, the Gospels are gnarly and strange, and they're all happening in an area that you can walk around. You know, you can walk around mm. with a map. Yeah. And I thought, oh, that's that's a little bit too much like real life for me. I, I better stay away from it. <laughs> so Lewis obviously has, I presume, had some influence on your thinking and, <laughs> you know, your imagination over the years. It, it's very striking to me that Lewis had a perhaps not dissimilar conversion experience himself. Conversion to Christianity obviously was, was immensely helped by his friendship with J.R.R. Tolkien. And they had this famous walk around Addison Walk, uh, the back of Magdalen College, where Tolkien apparently helped Lewis to see that Jesus may be regarded as the true myth, that all those other myths that so captured Lewis's imagination actually pointed towards something that really happened. I, I, I wondered whether that sort of was in any way analogous to your experience, uh, given your own background in mythology and so on. Yes, of course. I mean, that's... it's. Uh... As, as they would say, it's a no-brainer, really, uh, in, in the sense that Tolkien, Lewis, Chesterton, Barfield, Charles Williams, others, there is a very real dynamic English-Christian mythopoetic tradition that goes way back into the last century and beyond. I mentioned this earlier on with the Gospels. Something happens there where you find the promise of many myths all over the world arriving uncomfortably and dramatically in extraordinary form uh you know in this 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 area for 33 years and then out go back and read lewis's uh a pilgrim's regress and towards the end of it lewis through the characters makes a point where he says mother kirk which is his word for the church is a combination of two things. It's what he calls the big pictures of the pagans combined with the road of the Jewish people. Mm. When you have a road under your feet, something happens. But it is the nature, it is the nature of Mother Kirk that every few hundred years she starts to crumble and she grows into crisis. And at that point, the landlord starts to secrete the big pictures into people's hearts and minds again. Mm. And I really believe, and I would call it big dreams, this is a big dream moment and something is actually happening. It's, it's absolutely unarguable in my own life. And so there's a lot of us looking around and saying, yeah, this is a moment both of tremendous adversity but incredible possibility. Now, Justin, every single myth... I've ever told begins when you are outnumbered and outgunned. Nothing happens until you're at that moment. So this is an incredible time to be born into. But that would be my point is that Christians are great at vision. 
you know, mobilize. Mm-hmm. But the the dreaming underneath that, that ferment that is not just worked out in the daylight, you know, we need nighttime Christians as well as daytime Christians. That's an Aboriginal indigenous idea, and I think it's a very good one. And the the early desert sisters and mothers and desert fathers, they understood that. You go out, sit quietly, and listen to what God is is trying to communicate through you. And sometimes that comes through these stages. And I think that to go back, I think as Christians, we need to remember we're made of mud and holy wind. And I think that that, that kind of, that part of us, that part, that part of our actual consciousness and our mind is being on something of a starvation diet yeah. uh, in the West. I wonder... Even as we see church going in the West decline and institutional religion losing its power alongside a meaning crisis in our culture, whether Martin Shaw's idea that we're living in a moment when the Christian dream is being reborn could be true. Paul Kingsnorth, whose own recent conversion story maps rather closely with Martin Shaw's, believes that something is afoot. I think people will be ready for actual serious Christianity again, you know, full strength Christianity, not the weak worldly version, the real thing. And I think it's starting to happen. I can feel it, especially amongst younger people, interestingly. Yeah. In my generation, younger people, you know, I've, I've heard so many stories. I mean, even somebody like Jordan Peterson, who isn't a Christian, although he can't stop talking about it for some reason, I don't know what's going on there, but he'll give lectures about the, the, the two-hour lectures about the book of Genesis and it'll fill up with 20-year-olds. You know, yeah. that would never have happened 20 years ago, yeah. five years ago. There's something going on that's pulling people towards towards it. Yeah, I mean, it seems to have happened to me. And I think it's happening to a lot of other people as well. So, yeah, I think it's like the more worldly we become, the more we worship the world, the more we start to do increasingly dark and disturbing things trying to live forever, upload our minds into the cloud, create new life itself, the more this this sort of pull towards actual faith, an actual God, rather than the false one, is gonna is gonna be stronger, I think. I'm feeling that's happening already. My conversations with both Paul Kingsnorth and Martin Shaw have given me hope partly because of their own stories, and we'll hear more about both their rather remarkable conversions in more detail in a future episode of the podcast, but also because I truly believe people can only exist on a starvation diet from meaning for so long. That's why I believe we're living at a time when the tide is turning. The melancholy long-withdrawing roar of Matthew Arnold's sea of faith may be reaching its furthest limit, And we may be seeing the first signs that people are ready to live in a story that brings meaning, purpose and identity back into their lives. However outdated and irrelevant it may seem to many people today, I believe the church and the Christians who are part of it will be key to telling the Christian story compellingly again. Bishop Graham Tomlin. One period of of history that I've been thinking about quite a lot recently is um, is the 1940s. Which I think is the last time we did this really well as the Christian church. Um, because right in the 1940s, there was a big debate going on around what, you know, Second World War, what's going to rebuild European civilization after the trauma of Nazism? You know, after a, you know, a very sophisticated country like Germany had descended into this barbaric regime, you know, and Europe had been consumed by this destructive war, 
what is going to rebuild civilization? And Christians were right at the heart of that debate at the time. So you had people like C.S. Lewis giving broadcast talks on the radio, a sort of rather crusty academic English professor from Oxford, um, which and those talks eventually became Mere Christianity, which was published in 1952, I think. Um, you had W.H. Auden, um, you know, one of the greatest English poets of the, of the last century, who, uh, you know, started out not as a Christian at all, but partly by... Um, confronting the evil of Nazism and then having to think to himself what 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 has got the spiritual and moral power to confront something like this and realizing ultimately only the kind of profound um, riches of Christian faith had the sort of moral and spiritual ability to kind of overcome the evil of Nazism he becomes a Christian and starts writing profoundly Christian poetry you get T.S. Eliot doing the same thing with you know the move from the the wasteland of 1922 this rather bleak sort of view of, of of the world without any great hope in it to the four quartets which is again is a deeply christian um sort of um cycle of poems written in the 1940s you get evelyn war again you know brideshead revisited um you know deeply kind of uh, catholic author you know he says at the beginning of that book this book is about the the various workings of divine grace upon particular individuals and the story of their lives um you get dorothy sayers writing her plays about the life of Jesus, again on the radio, you got um, people on the continent like Simone Vai and Jacques Maritain, you had an Archbishop of Canterbury here at Lambeth, William Temple, um, with his ideas that partly gave birth to the to the welfare state in a, the, the Christian democratic movement, which gave birth to the European Union after the Second World War. In other words, you know, these were people who really were re-enchanting their, their world, and they weren't, well, they weren't by and large theologians, they were novelists and poets and one or two politicians and the figures would get a church decline from the mid 19th mm. century down to the mm. kind of um, uh, you know present day. The one little blip in, in in that is the late 1940s and early 1950s, uh, where you actually get a little bit of an upturn in the number of people going to church, confirmations, baptisms, all those kind of little measures. And um, and I think I mean, you know you can't prove these things, can you? But I think that the fact that you had these authors these writers, these thinkers who were articulating this very kind of attractive, compelling, rich Christian vision of the world in the 1940s. Um, in time, it led to people feeling Christian faith was something believable, credible, mm. attractive. What if the blip that Tomlin identified in the 1940s, a momentary swell in the Christian story against the backdrop of the nihilism of two world wars, is actually a foretaste of a bigger sea change that we may yet see against the backdrop of an increasingly nihilistic and meaning-starved contemporary West. I asked Peter Linus and Joe Frost, co-authors of the recent book, The Human Story, whether the tide could be turning. I mean, Pete, are you seeing any hopeful stories of people that, as it were, who, who who's their, the other stories have kind of run out for them, that they, they haven't provided the meaning and they finally found that the Christian story turns out does have something to say to what it means to be human after all. Yes, absolutely. And I think at two levels, again, you see it at the kind of larger cultural level where you see that, okay, what is a woman? Actually, okay, actually that's quite, and we're splitting and not along traditional lines. People are going, hold on, there's no coherent underlying thing we can agree upon. We're falling apart within tribes around that. And then people are going, is there something more that we can say? So you see it that then absolutely at the more personal level, it's the parent who settles up to me at a swim gal and says, look, I don't agree with all your tweets. It's probably something to do with sexuality, which says, but I'm so glad you tweet on this. 
like our daughters are swimming and said it's not fair they might have to compete against boys and they definitely shouldn't be in the same changing room and so that opens the space for a slightly different conversation where we're now in agreement on some of these cultural issues the other point is for me still around the kind of death crisis supernatural people are still open to prayer people are still in that moment of crisis themselves they want there to be something more or will often at the moment of encounter go oh my goodness something's happened or I feel or I sense something the intellectual often comes, I mean, even with Lewis or somebody, it's like an experience almost first and then the story, like for so many people, there's an encounter moment, there's experience in the presence of God, there's a there's somebody prays for you, you feel that Jesus is there and you can't almost put words to it and it doesn't sound, like it sounds almost weird to say it and they know it, but there's something that happens in that moment and that's the kind of transcendent seems in our very secular age, people want there to be an experience like that, please tell me there's something more than what I see around me and it's so pathetic if you like every day I, I'm a news junkie but every day I just go what what this is getting worse I don't know how people do it without the God story as an anchoring story without the community of faith that we get to journey with but at the center of that without the person of Jesus I don't know how, I mean fair play to people in a sense raising families doing life getting through I couldn't do it and, but I want to invite people into those the story the community and the central person of Jesus and I, I'm seeing people definitely more open to that so I think the idea that Christianity is just kind of some wacko belief is kind of, it's really, everything's a wacko belief at, at the minute. It feels like everybody's views are up for grabs. Everybody's beliefs are getting pulled around. We're all as wacko or as crazy or as sensible as the next person. There is no clear dominant story anymore. And so, but in many ways I see that as a massive opportunity and, and ours has the benefit. And I say this kind of, how do we do it? of being true and being, it does in fact explain reality in a way that's different and that's been my experience. So I want to tell you that intellectually, but I also want to say experientially, I've encountered Jesus and he's changed my life. I mean, just finally, Joe, I think for me, what's really important in this is is what what Peter's been referencing there, the church, the, the community within which we tell this story and encourage each other in it, because we're, we're made to be relational, obviously. And and to that extent, I almost wonder whether in our highly technological culture, it's actually increasing that individualistic sort of nature in culture where, you know, despite being more connected than ever, we're more lonely than ever and everything else. Maybe the church is one of almost becoming the last remaining place where you can potentially find true community. I mean, is that is that an important part, again, of, of this sort of finding the human story, that the fact that it's through the church ultimately that we, that we discover it? Oh, Absolutely. And I think that's the church is both the the representation of the new humanity in Jesus, um, but it's also the representation of the fallenness of humanity. It should not surprise us that we find our brokenness in the church and that the church is of sin <laughs> um, and, and, and hurt and harm. But actually at its beauty the church is the lifesaver the church is the bride of christ we are um the general eve we come in and we offer life um in partnership with jesus and it is in those church communities and all of us if we've been in church for any period of time we have had those stories we have had those stories of people come in and say this was my hospital this you saved me. This was I had nothing, and 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 I came, and you welcomed me. We can lose sight of the beauty of the church. That this we are the bride of Christ, adorned in splendor, because we still see through a glass dimly 
all the bits that we fail at. But day in, day out, in communities, down our streets, in our places, we see the church serving our community and bringing the kingdom manifest in people's lives. We saw it in COVID. Church workers were key workers. It was the church that fed, not exclusively, but time and time again, we put our values, we put our story into practice and we saw life um, and we saw the power of Jesus break into people. And I think we can never lose faith in the church. We can recognize our fallibilities and we can give ourselves over again to say, Jesus, have your way with us. Transform us again by your spirit. Sanctify us, justify us. Bring us back by your grace. Forgive us for the bits that we get wrong. But Lord, help us be your church because the church is humanity. It is the coming of Christ manifest in our communities and it's a beautiful thing. If the Christian story is going to come back in on the tide and quench the existential thirst of a generation experiencing a meaning crisis, then I believe the church needs to learn how to tell that story creatively and compellingly again to a culture that has largely forgotten it. But I'm also encouraged that the story, while half forgotten, continues to bubble away unconsciously beneath our culture. The death of Queen Elizabeth II was one of those moments that seemed to bring it to the surface again. I'm convinced we all need a story to live by, and I'm increasingly getting the sense that this generation may be primed to hear the Christian story again. And often, it's prophets from outside the church who seem to be reminding us of it most powerfully. You've been listening to The Surprising Rebirth of Belief in God, telling the story of how new atheism grew old and secular thinkers are considering Christianity again. This podcast series is also a book. You can read the first chapter for free when you join my newsletter at justinbriley.com, where you can also order the book or get a signed copy. Patreon supporters get early access to new episodes of this podcast, plus bonus content. You can find out more and about other ways to support this show at justinbriley.com. Coming up. I mean, I'm not asking people to be believing Christians. I'm not a believing Christian. Um, but one of the things I say is we are Christians anyway, whether we like it or not. And we're probably finding that out at the moment. I mean, where the hell do people think the human rights came from? A new conversation begins. Today's episode was a production of Think Faith in partnership with Genexis and with support from the Jerusalem Trust. Editing assistance by Isaac Simmons. You can find links to the book and all our featured guests with the show notes. Finally, please do subscribe to this podcast, do rate and review us, and share us on social media. It really helps others to discover this new documentary series. And of course, you can get the next episode you just heard a clip from a week early when you support at justinbriley.com. The link is with today's show. See you next time.
Hi there, it's Justin again. Thanks for listening. Just a reminder, if you want more Thinking Faith, then do get our newsletter at the link with today's episode. I'll even send you the first chapter of the Surprising Rebirth of Belief in God book when you do so. If you can support this show, you'll get access to new episodes two weeks early and bonus content, such as the video of our Tom Holland conversation event in London. Gold Level supporters will also receive a signed copy of my book, The Surprising Rebirth of Belief in God. Just click the link with today's show.